0: Alright, so tonight we are in chapter 19 of Revelation, and we're going to finish the chapter today. Been in this chapter a couple of weeks here already. Um, We're looking at the final battle, the final battle. And of course, the whole book of Revelation is is a continual story of the redemptive history of God throughout the ages. It's showing what God has done through history, and it will culminate in this final battle. So what is this battle that we're going to look at today? I believe it's the same battle that was mentioned in Revelation 16, verses 14 through 16. So when we were there in Revelation 16, we came right up to the pinnacle of a battle, and then it, 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 it's nothing happened. And that happens a lot in Revelation, if we remember. We had the seven trumpets, the, the seven bowls, uh, each of these, the seven seals, each of those, again, tell these stories same narratives of of god's judgment his people staying faithful they're being persecuted he sends judgments to try to get people to repent and then you you come up to the final trumpet or the final seal and it leads us right up to the end where christ returns but then it really doesn't go into great detail but now in chapters 19 through 21 we see the final battle we see the final things revealed But I believe it began back in Revelation 16, 14, and 16. Let me read this for us to remind us of where we were there. It says this, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. By the way, the great day of the Lord is is a theme throughout history. There's going to be a great day of the Lord. And so what we see here is the demonic forces, which again, we've seen that represented as the harlots. We've seen it represented as Babylon. We've seen the beast, all this antichrist system that goes into the world and causes this world, the kings, the nations, the industries to turn against God and to cause people to literally (laughs) serve wickedness. And so these spirits have gone around the world entered into the kings, and now they get the whole world, it says, and they've assembled themselves for battle on the great day of the Almighty, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that's the battle we're talking about, the battle of Armageddon, the final battle. We see it again in Revelation 17. Again, there's no more details given in chapter 16. We we move on, and yet we come to chapter 17, and we see another glimpse of this. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So again, we we've already seen the things that we're looking at in these little snapshots. And what we see here again is the whole world is gathered against God they hate his authority, they hate his people, and now they're gathered for war, but it gives us the quick end of the story, the Lamb will conquer them, right? But then it goes on to say, not only gives us the names that have already been used for him, he's the Lord of lords and King of kings, but it talks about those with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. So again, there's a glimpse of us right there with him. But then we come to our text today, Revelation 19, 19. And let's just take a look at that as it talks about, again, this final vision of this final battle. It says this. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So we're right there at that moment. This is what chapter 19 is about. It's the the cataclysmic moment of that final battle. Christ is on his horse. The enemies are gathered ready to make war with him. So what is this? this? This is the culmination of history. This is the culmination of what Psalm chapter 2 talked about. Literally, David was prophesying about this day in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Uh, and I want to read that in its, in its entirety because, again, we see how Revelation is, of a, is a fulfillment of the whole Bible. The whole Bible continually leads up to this. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I'll stop there to say this is happening. It's happening throughout history. It happens in cycles. Remember, we see these little mini cycles of this where demonic kings rise, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Rome or Germany, whatever, through the ages, we see these cyclical pictures And this is what's happening where they rise and they say, we're going to overthrow this bond of righteousness. We're going to go against the Lord. But all of those are foreshadows of this final conflict. They are small potatoes compared to what we're about to see in this final battle. And yet, let's look at this. Let's look as we look forward from what David said hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He says, They will say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, which everybody's saying today about God's righteousness, right? Because they are under the influence of the harlot. Everybody is drunk on the unrighteousness of this world. And they're saying, let's cast off these bonds of, of old fashioned marital rules and old fashioned gender rules and old fashioned rules about sex. And uh, we don't need any of that. That's what they're saying. And that's what this is prophesying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us he who, now here's the result, here's the, here's the response, right? It's been this way throughout history, but this is the final, the final thought. I believe we're looking all the way to the end, and here's what God does. It says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, uh, and the ends of the earth, your possession. So this is the promise for Christ being the, the final ruler and the final judge. Cause he goes on to say this, you Christ shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So as we look from Psalm all the way back to Psalms, and we're looking all the way up to Revelation, this is that fulfillment. Chapter 19, this battle, when Christ returns and he crushes his enemies with a single word, dashes them into pieces and rules and reigns forevermore. So when is this battle? That's another good question. As we study Revelation, there's, there's a lot of different views on when this battle actually occurs some post-millennial scholars place this battle right now, that it's been going on since Christ uh, died on the cross, and it's, it's a continual battle for this world, and that we are God's soldiers, and that we are daily fighting Satan, and we're slowly advancing, and the world is slowly becoming more and more Christ-like. It's a hard one to swallow for me, but that the world is becoming more and more Christ-like and that we're somehow making this place the kingdom of God. So the idea of a a true post-millennial They would say well when Jesus returns we will have already set up the kingdom for him (laughs) That's the victory of the church. The church will be victorious through the gospel It's very optimistic and it sounds wonderful and the gospel is doing exactly what it was meant to do It is victorious in bringing people to Christ and building God's kingdom. Yes, that is true But it's hard to see this view of saying, okay, we are these soldiers and we are to go out there and fight, literally fight the secular world. I don't think that's quite the case. I think, myself, that this battle is to happen at Christ's second coming. This final battle, this final destroying of the enemy and the the setting up of a new kingdom, that all happens at Christ's second coming. Here's the problem. Here's why we have to place this thing in the correct place chronologically in history. If we put it in the present, there's a danger of us having this hostile attitude toward the world and the people in this world. Does that make sense? If we are, therefore, to set up a kingdom and to fight the enemy and to fight wicked people and to literally get rid of them so that we can set up the kingdom of God, that that sets up a very hostile attitude towards this world and to people around us. Matter of fact, that's exactly what the mindset of the Crusades were many centuries ago. We we remember the Crusades and they they felt like, hey, we are God's warriors. We're going to march into Jerusalem. They slaughtered hundreds and hundreds of Muslims and Jewish people to take over Jerusalem in the name of the kingdom of God. That's what that mindset does for us to say, okay, we're here to fight with the sword and we're here to make this world uh, you know, dominantly Christian. We're going to do this by force. And that's not, I, I believe, what the Bible teaches. We don't conquer our enemies with a sword. Matter of fact, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Remember that? We don't conquer. Revelation 12, 11 reminds us how we right now, as faithful sufferers for Christ, actually overcome our enemies. What does it say in verse 11? And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. We don't fight to preserve our lives and fight to preserve our kingdom and fight to, with a sword in and, and, and a physical way. We actually fight by giving the testimony of Christ. We actually preach the gospel even unto death. We'll shed our blood for other people before we'll kill them in the name of God's kingdom. Do you see that, that difference And again, by the way, let me just put a a quick note in here. Not all post-millennials are carrying a sword trying to kill people. So don't believe that. I mean, there's good friends of ours. We have some in our church that believe a more post-millennial view. And they don't hold that view of of radical, we're going to take over by the sword. But it can lend in history to that in different ways people have looked at that. That's all I'm saying. So I believe, again, what we see in Revelation without a question is there's this suffering that happens with the Church of Christ Yes, there is a victory in the gospel. It will accomplish what it's going to accomplish. That's why we have to preach it. But we may die doing it, and and we may suffer as we do it. But then, just as we think the end is coming, because also what we see throughout Revelation is that even though there have been cycles of history where there's been ups and downs of Christianity, right? There's been times where it's just seemed like it was going to take over the world. Pre-World War I, right? Remember those days? Things were great. Missionaries were everywhere. Post-millennial thought was high, riding high, until World War I, World War II. Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, just on down the line, people realize, wait a minute, the world's not getting better and better. It's actually many times getting worse and worse. And it's been up and down, right? Moments of revival have broken out, where the church has been strong, and then moments of just upheaval of evil have taken place. And yet, here's my point. What Revelation shows us is that it's going to culminate, though. There's going to come a time when pretty much the whole world gathers, as we saw in Psalms, as we saw in all those verses in Revelation, when pretty much under the influence of the Antichrist, the evil, the, the harlot, the whole world is coming together in unity against God and his people. And I would just say, even though I'm not, we have no idea of a date or time, I have never seen in history, and I know many of our grandparents have probably preached like this as well, but we've never had a time where social media connected the whole world and gets it on the same page as it does today. And we've never had a time when many, many, many nations are all in unison in their decrying of God's laws, their, their rebelliousness to God's morals. Never have we seen something like this. So I'm just saying, this is what it's going to be like when the world in unison calls good evil and evil good and begins to come after and persecute God's people for simply loving them enough to tell the truth. And that's where our persecution will come. That's going to happen. And we're going to feel like we are besieged in, in, in Jerusalem, right? With the Romans coming. That's how we're going to feel as the church. That's what Revelation was talking about. God has given the enemy authority to persecute her for three and a half years, it said, right? There will be great persecution and the church will be persecuted. People will be martyred. They'll be dying and we'll be thinking, this is it, it's over. That is God's providence because just at the very last moment when all hope is lost, Christ rides in on the white horse. He opens his mouth and the sword comes out and with one word, he destroys the enemies. And justice is finally done. And we are vindicated and we are now ruling and reigning with him forever. That's what we're seeing. So now as we come to the beginning of this battle, real quick, uh, we're going to look at this tonight, this, this last battle, what we see. We're going to look at the beginning of it. We already saw it last week. I'm going to read it again just to kind of give us this glorious picture. The stage is set. The enemies are hot on the trail of every, every believer on earth, blaspheming the name of God. As we see today, so we could just say, "Hey, let's just pretend like it's right now." You're watching the Emmys, and everybody's doing a satanic ritual. You're watching Disney movies, and they're telling your kids to be transgender. They're telling your kids that the traditional family is a lie. We're just just we're we're in this overcoming place where we feel overwhelmed, and it looks like the enemy will win. But verse eleven says this: "Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse." And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So there's that theme again that we just saw. We are with him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And again, I love this part because we're riding with him, but don't, don't worry about packing your sword. We're not going to fight. I know it's exciting to say we're riding with him into battle and we're going to fight. No, because here's what happens. Here's the whole battle. For his mouth, for, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. With which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now do we not see how these verses are all going together? Psalm chapter 2 and all the other verses that we've read. Now look at the horrifying results. That's where we begin tonight in our section. The horrifying results of this final battle. Verses 17 through 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a pretty grotesque scene, actually. And this... This, this passage has caused a lot of controversy through the years. There's two things we really need to notice here as we see this horrific, grotesque scene of basically calling all of the birds of the heavens to come eat all the, all the carnage that is the result of the victory of the Son of God over evil on this whole earth. Two things. Notice the clear contrast, first and foremost, the clear contrast with the earlier summons of believers to the wedding supper of God. Remember that? We, we saw that a few weeks ago. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of God, we who will be arrayed in white righteous robes provided to us by the grace of God are called to the marriage supper where we will glorify God for his grace in saving us. But now we have this, carnage, and this carnage of the battle is called the wedding. I'm sorry, it's called the great supper of God. And I don't think there's a, there's uh, any coincidence here. Basically, the point of having this marriage supper of God, and then this great supper of God after judgment, is this. The point is this. The point is that God is glorified in judgment and in the salvation of people. He's glorified in both. God gets glory. And that's what it's hard for us as humans, that we, we don't like that. It doesn't, we can't comprehend that. We only think that, okay, he gets glory for being a loving God. But when he's not a loving God, we don't like that God. If you watch any talk show and you talk to people who have left Christianity or they're trying to build their own Christianity, that's what they'll say. Well, the Old Testament, you know what? I just heard it uh, this, this week. I don't know who it was or what show, so don't ask me any of that. But I just know this. She says well, my kids, we were reading this old, this Bible, it was the Old Testament by uh, Winnie the Pooh Old Testament. A Winnie the Pooh Old Testament. I did catch that, and I thought, that's pretty novel. A Winnie the Pooh Old Testament. But even that thing must have had some truth, because she said, I just couldn't get past that angry God in the Old Testament. So we stopped with the Winnie the Pooh Old Testament, because we didn't want to hear the angry God, and we began to read only those portions in the New Testament that talked about the loving God, the nice Jesus. You see my point? So, so. We as humans, we don't like these truths of God's word to see God as he is. But Revelation strips everything aside and says, this is it. I am God, he is telling us. I am glorified when I save people by my grace. Because there is nobody in the universe that has that kind of grace and that kind of love. And so the marriage supper of the Lamb, I will be glorified when everybody there is only there by the grace And goodness and love of God. But he's saying also, on this other hand, when I destroy the wicked, when I leave their carnage all over this globe, I am glorified in that as well, because there is nobody as just as me, nobody as righteous as me, nobody as holy as me. You see that? And we have to submit to the whole God and trust him and rest in, in him. So that's the first thing we see here is that the glory of God is seen, not just in the marriage supper of the Lamb, but in this great supper where the beast and the birds of the air will feed on the carnage of God's enemies. But number two, we're gonna, we, we got to understand this little passage that judgment applies equally to all people. It's an equal thing. Everyone is Included in this. Your station in life doesn't matter, right? The birds will eat the flesh of kings and captains. All men, it said. Mighty men, free men, slaves, small and great men. So again, showing it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor, well-known or an unknown. Doesn't matter. Everybody is under the wrath of God who has broken his commands and not repented. Of their sin and trusted him. That's just it. That's period. There is no partiality here. It's Romans chapter 118 coming to pass. What does Romans 118 tell us? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Every human being that suppresses the truth of God and denies him, ignores him, makes fun of him, goes their way. Without him, will be under his wrath. That's what he's saying here. Now, we're going to continue. We're not finished because now we're going to see the outcome for the false prophet and the beast. Verses 20 and 21. Look what it says here. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Again, I'm going to stop and explain this again. We've seen this several times, but we've seen this picture throughout Revelation. The Antichrist, a beast system that, that influences this world for evil. I believe that's what that is. Uh, I believe that the false prophet is the means, the, the propaganda whereby that goes forth. Uh, and, and so what we see here, is when it says the one who deceived in his presence, literally in his place, in his stead, so to speak, for him on his behalf, And that was what what has been happening, right? So much so that people actually received and were marked by that mark of the beast. The beast, again, instead of a person, is this world system that is anti-Christ, contrary to God, and influences people to actually live according to the ideologies. That's what it means to receive the mark of the beast as we saw already on the forehead or on the hand. And we've seen throughout the Bible that the forehead is a picture of how you think and your hand pictures what you do. People show who they are. They are marked already by their thoughts and by their actions. And and this is what we're seeing happening here. Those who followed the Antichrist system did not obey God, but obeyed rather the sin of their heart. And they, they lived that way and they thought that way. That's who it is. That's who it is that is that is being captured by the beast, that is. The beast himself is captured, and the false prophet. And look what happens to them. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So again, a horrible picture. I mean it's horrific. It's, it's gross. And yet it's it's God's word. And what it's showing us again is there is no partiality. We we, we can't say the devil made me do it, Lord, so you can't punish me. (laughs) He's going to take the beast and the false prophet and throw them directly into hell, but he's also going to punish and destroy all who took their mark, all who followed after them, all who lived an anti-God life. And, And I think it's important to understand this, word when it says those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. It's important to grab that because that's, that's God's way of showing us that this is eternal punishment. They're alive. They're living in this punishment. There are four references to the lake of fire beginning in the end of revelation here. We're going to be seeing them in the future, but I think it's fitting that we grab these right now. And just take a quick study of them. Not only will the beast and his false prophet be cast into the lake of fire, but Satan himself in verse 10 of chapter 20, Revelation 20 verse 10 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we combine that with the words they were thrown alive into the fire and now this verse which lets us know without a doubt that that torment is day and night forever and forever but they are not the only ones that will end up in the lake of fire according to revelation and in verse 15 of chapter 20 it says this and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire and again obviously it's the same the same punishment for all and then this, again, should, should wake us up. Now, now, what we see then is that there's no question that the Bible talks about an eternal punishment for all people, not just Satan and, and his angels, but everybody who followed him, everybody who denied Christ and lived for themselves. And many refuse it, refuse to believe this, though. They refuse to believe in the eternal damnation of the soul. They've opted for a more civil idea of annihilationism annihilationism is a pretty big doctrine among uh, growing among evangelicals it just means that when you go to hell you're going to be annihilated like it'll hurt for a few minutes and then you're just burned up sounds good I mean obviously before that as a human being I don't want to see anybody suffer I don't think any Christians should sit back and say boy we love to see people suffer that's not our heart but we got to know what the Bible says we can't base our doctrine on sentimentality and what we want and what we think sounds good the bible was very clear in the verses we just read that this idea of annihilation is not even an option forever and forever day and night does not give an option jesus said you will be cast into gehenna where the worm dies not and that worm is a picture of the soul of a a person who's been thrown into hell and that that person does not die so the Bible's plain about this. Christ 12 times talked about hell and the flames and how terrible it would be and even alluded to the fact that it will be eternal, that you will be living in there because he said, if you could avoid that place by cutting off your hand, it'd be much better to go into heaven with missing one hand than it would be to be thrown into hell with all of your members where you're going to live forever in punishment. Do you see that? That, that emphasis? So we've got to believe the Bible. It's clear that the Bible speaks of an everlasting punishment. The same word used for everlasting punishment and everlasting fire is the same word used for everlasting life. We can't have it both ways. Just as everlasting as we will be in the presence of God, that's how everlasting those will be apart from the presence of God in damnation. That, that's what we see. And again, that's the Bible. I'm just saying we either believe that or not. It's hard, I understand, but this is where Charles Spurgeon dealt with this, and I think he did a, a great job when he said this. I believe certain doctrines because God says they are true, and the only authority I have for their truth is the word of God. I receive such and such doctrines, not because I can prove them to be compatible with reason, not because my judgment accepts them, but because God says they are true. And there's our faith. There's where we rest. And we say, okay, I don't understand. I don't understand this. I don't even like this. But I trust you, Lord, because you're the one that made me. (laughs) It's back to that idea that I get so crazy about. We act like we somehow co-made ourselves with God, and we're half God. And we can bargain with him and do what we want and reason things out. We are just little dust balls breathed with his air, filled with his air, it's all because of him that we exist and for him. So again, that's, it's just totally unfathomable, unfathomable to me that people would question. And again, I understand the only reason I could say that, the only reason I can believe God and trust God is because of his spirit who worked in me to give me a faith to trust him, as Spurgeon says here. But here's the thing. Many will continue to complain about the gruesomeness of God's judgment The unfairness of his strictness and yet here's the kicker we are living and that person who criticizes god is living in the the age of grace this is the age of grace if you're breathing and you're alive you are in a state of grace in that you are able to repent and believe on the lord jesus christ his good sun shines on you every morning his good air fills your lungs every morning. This is, this is why you, instead of arguing, right, about what God has done and why you don't understand it and why it doesn't seem fair, just fall upon his mercy, beg him to save you and trust him for the rest. That's all we can do. So John 1:10 and 12 say this. I'm talking about when Christ came into the world, the light of the world the only light for all people. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But here's the glorious truth. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's the grace of God. There's the mercy of God. There's there's all we've got, folks. If you don't like Revelation, (laughs) this is talking to anybody who's watching or listening or, or even sitting here. If you don't like it, you don't agree with it, you're angry with it, I plead with you, repent and trust Christ. See the love of God right now while it is available. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Don't boast yourself of tomorrow. Don't wait because when you die or when Christ returns, that's it. This is the moment to rest in the grace of God, to believe that Christ is your only hope. As many as believe in him, you receive the right, the authority to be a child of God. There's our safety. There's our solid rock to stand in the midst of all this chaos that nobody can take it away from us, even if they kill us. Everything we've read is our future State. This is what God's revealing to us. This is what's going to happen. There's where we rest. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Give us the grace to stand in this world. Let us fight faithfully as though we can change this world ourselves. Let us fight with that fervor, not with swords and bullets and anger, but with the gospel. Let us go into this world telling everybody we can about a savior who will transform them and one by one as people change communities do change countries have been revolutionized by the gospel so father we trust you still for that we let us be faithful to do that work let us not worry about everything else around us let us worry about being faithful to proclaim your word to see you change hearts and lives and let us trust you with the rest and we pray all these things in christ's name